Dear Father, thank you, Lord, for the consistency and the uh, diligence of so many who have partnered with this ministry and you using them, Father, to uh, support us and to help us get to the to the place you want us to be, to, to guide our teaching, to guide our use of resources, to uh, to just follow you as you lead us. Uh, each of us, Father, endeavor to serve you in our best efforts, but we do it not in our own strength. And uh, it always depends, Father, on you bringing the power and the grace and the knowledge. And you do that, Father, in many ways, particularly through friends. Thank you for friends, Father. Thank you for those who made themselves a part of our work. And, Lord, thank you for the Gospel of John and for this message tonight. pray that you'd strengthen my voice and uh, guide my understanding so that what I say, Father, is according to your will. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last week I introduced chapter 6 of John by pointing to Psalm 23. Remember, we started with Psalm 23. In that psalm, David writes, The Lord is his shepherd, and he describes how the shepherd is the one who provides for the sheep such that they would have no want He makes them to lie down in the green pasture, that is, in the fertile pastures. And then when we studied in the very first part of John chapter 6, we saw the miracle of Christ feeding the crowd of 5,000 men and and the other people with them. And he did it by multiplying bread and fish. And then we we took time to note that John orchestrated the narrative. He, He created his narrative to reveal a couple of pictures of Christ. First, he confirmed for us what was written in Psalm 23 that Jesus is the shepherd David was talking about. And it it was not coincidence that the Lord walked through the process of this miracle in the way that he did so that it lines up in certain ways with that psalm, reminding us that he is the shepherd who told the people to sit on the green grass so that he could provide them more than they could eat, so they'd have no want. And then the second picture John emphasized was Jesus as a latter-day Moses in fulfillment of Moses' own words. Because in the desert, Moses told Israel to expect a prophet to arrive in the future, a prophet that Moses said would be like him in that he would speak all that the father commands. Now, Israel understood this promise to be a promise of the coming Messiah. And in fact, as this miracle plays out, you remember we heard the people looking up at Christ and sort of having that bell go off in their head and they say, oh, he must be that prophet that Moses was talking about, meaning they recognized him to be that promised Messiah. They had seen Jesus crossing a body of water. They had seen Jesus followed by this crowd of many Jews in need and of how he arrived at this desolate place, just like the Jews of the Exodus arrived at a desolate place. He ascended the mountain, just like Moses ascends a mountain. And he brought the people a miraculous source of bread, just as Moses brought manna to the people in the desert. After they see all of this, it evokes in their minds a memory of of Exodus and they call Jesus the prophet. Now, what do we think they mean when they said, there's the prophet. John puts that question aside for a time so that he can turn his attention to the disciples, but we need to come back to that question. And we will toward the end of tonight. What did they mean when they said he was the prophet? Meanwhile, the disciples of Jesus participated in this same miracle, so they must have been amazed to see what unfolded. So that offers us a second question for the night. What did they take away from this spectacle? What did they think of Jesus after they saw this miracle? Has it altered their understanding of Jesus's identity? Do they recognize Jesus as the shepherd of Psalm 23, for example? Do they understand him as the latter day fulfillment of the picture that Moses created? Well, if so, if that's true, if they saw these things in the way they should, then the next events of chapter six would have given them an excellent opportunity to demonstrate that understanding. 
Because the next line of Psalm 23 is, he leads me beside quiet waters. That same shepherd that provides for his sheep in green pastures is the same one who will make sure that the waters are still and calm for us. So as a continuation of the test that we heard John announce at the beginning of the chapter, he said at the beginning that Jesus was testing his disciples. Well, as a continuation of that test, he is now going to allow his disciples to experience some very turbulent waters. And this test will be to see, do they understand his power? Having seen it displayed so clearly a moment earlier, each of these tests moves them closer to an understanding of Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies concerning Messiah. And there are different Old Testament prophecies being layered here. We've seen a couple already. There's still others to come. John 6, verses 16 through 21. That's where we pick up. Let's look at that together in our Bibles. John writes, now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. After getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because of a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, these events serve as a bridge in John's narrative between the earlier discussion of his feeding of the crowd and an eventual reunion that's going to take place on the other side of the Sea of Galilee between Jesus and that very same crowd that he fed earlier. So what we studied in the first part of this chapter wraps back around to the second half and becomes the main story part at the end. But between these two, you see this interesting little moment that sits all by itself, the the crossing of the Sea of Galilee. And as the story unfolds, John teaches us here, Jesus waited until the evening of the day that he fed everybody before he would descend the mountain with his disciples. And he waits up there, presumably, because the crowd had earlier been talking about taking him by force to Jerusalem to install him as king. Remember, that was why he went back up the mountain in the first place was to get away from them and not let them do that. This is not something Jesus wanted to see happen at this point in his ministry. So he retreated until evening. Now, evening has fallen. He's ready to return to Capernaum. Now, if you're following this same story in the other Gospels, in fact, I would encourage you to do that in Matthew and Mark. It's not in Luke. But if you're following the same story in the other Gospels, you may run into a point of confusion when you begin to make comparisons, when you begin to do parallel comparisons across them. Because in Mark's Gospel, you're told that they are returning to Bethesda. But Bethesda, John says, is the location where he did the feeding. So you might wonder, are they leaving Bethesda or are they returning to Bethesda? Because one talks about it one way, one talks about the other. Well, as it turns out, the answer is simple, as it always is. There are two Bethesdas at the Sea of Galilee. The word just means fish town. And you'd find it not surprising that there'd be multiple places around a large lake in which people fish called fish town. They were leaving a place called Bethesda Julius and returning to Bethesda, which was a part of Capernaum, almost a suburb of Capernaum. There are some other helpful things you're going to learn as you do comparisons across the three Gospels concerning these events. For example, we learn in Mark and Matthew that it was Jesus who escorted his disciples into the boat that evening, coming down that mountain. And then he's the one who told them to depart without him. In fact, it's funny, in Mark's Gospel, he records Jesus bidding farewell to his disciples. (laughs) Bye-bye, see you later, and he pushes them off. So I assume the disciples may have been wondering... 
why they were being sent away alone and when and how Jesus planned to rejoin them. Also in the other Gospels, we're told that Jesus sends the crowds away at that point. And following all of that, he retreats back up the mountain a second time, now to pray, according to Mark. So all three writers tell us Jesus sent the disciples late in the day, but before it was dark, according to Matthew and Mark, and then goes back up to pray at the top of the mountain. Now, John says in verse 16 that the disciples started to cross the sea in the boat, headed back to Capernaum, and they were rowing themselves, according to Mark. Now, that makes sense because we said last week the winds blow contrary to their direction. The winds blow from west to east. So they would have sailed over relatively easily. Now, not so easily, they've got to row themselves back. And at night, the winds can be especially strong. They tend to pick up toward the evening. So that's not unusual in this case for them to be facing a strong headwind. In the midst of that journey, because they're going slowly, night falls. And as we've discussed in earlier weeks in the study, remember, darkness is a frequent motif in John's gospel. And whenever John emphasizes darkness from whatever angle, whether talking about it metaphorically or whether he's just citing it as part of the circumstances like he does here. In each case, though, he emphasizes it to represent unbelief as a theme. So when we see these men now described as sitting in a boat in darkness, we should understand that John is emphasizing that detail to suggest something about them as well. And then John says that Jesus had not yet come to them. Now, that's a bit puzzling. It's unclear how disciples would have expected Jesus to eventually catch up to them. Perhaps they thought that he was going to walk along the shore, the same route they took when they walked over the first time, and that maybe they'd see him from the shore and they'd pick him up somewhere along the way. That's plausible because in the way they're going to be transversing the water here, They're not very far from the shore at any one point. Maybe they thought that he was going to row himself out to meet them, because as we'll learn later in the story, there's one more boat left behind. There's two boats on the shore when the disciples leave. They take one, they leave one. Maybe they thought he just went up to pray for a while, a little alone time, and then when he's done praying, he'll get into the other boat and he'll row out and catch up to them. Again, I don't know how they expect him to do that. Whatever they thought, John says they didn't expect to be without him forever on this boat. And at a point while they're waiting for him, he doesn't show and they decide on their own. It's better to just row away to Capernaum. Maybe we'll meet him there than it is to sit out here in the dark in the middle of the water doing nothing. That's what gave them the impetus to just start moving. John then tells us that at some point in the night, the seas begin to get stirred up. The phrase stirred up is a Greek word that literally means to be completely awakened. It's being used here euphemistically. The water awakened is really what he's saying. But it suggests then that the water has come alive with motion and become very turbulent. The other gospel writers tell us that the boat is battered. And then, of course, the wind was against them. Contrary to another moment in the gospels that you might confuse with this one if you're not careful, there's no indication that they were ever afraid of the storm itself. Remember, there's another moment in the gospels when they're all in the boat with Jesus. He's sleeping at one end and they're afraid by the storm. This is not that moment. So they're not troubled at all by their situation. It's just a normal evening wind. It's a little rough. We get that here from time to time. We just keep moving. We'll eventually make it where we're going. They're not bothered by it. They're just working hard to make the boat move. In fact, Matthew tells us they were so labored in this effort to try to move against the water that at the time Jesus finally approaches them on the water, it's somewhere between 3 and 6 a.m. So they've been spending perhaps six or seven hours on the water trying to move what is a relatively short distance. It should have taken them roughly half that time if you even allow for a fairly slow row. 
And then John adds that they had rowed about three miles in this account. They're all just cutting right across the little tip. That's all they're doing. And that whole distance is barely three miles, maybe a little longer. So they're almost home after this long row. Mark's gospel may confuse you a little because it says that they were in the middle of the sea. But the Greek word for middle can also be translated midst of the sea. In other words, he's saying they're still too far from land to get out of the boat. That's really all he was trying to emphasize. He wasn't necessarily talking about where on the lake they were. They were just out on water, period. All right, with all that background, now you reach the action of the story, the real heart of it, of course. At this point, rowing against water, going nowhere fast, tired in the middle of the night, they look up and they see Jesus walking on the water. Now, countless jokes have referenced this scene, and many have been said to walk on water as a way of suggesting a claim to perfection, right? This has become euphemism in our culture, and trite even. Jesus could not have selected a better entrance, but it's not altogether unprecedented. In times past, the Lord has used his command over natural elements as an entrance, as a way of demonstrating his power and his authority, of proving himself. And the most dramatic example we have of that, of course, is, once again, the story of Exodus. When Moses was called upon to part waters, turn them into blood, or do other dramatic things, right? Here again, this scene reminds us of the Exodus account, at least in the sense that we see God demonstrating his power over the elements to prove his claims. And that's the purpose here. Now, I like to explore things from different angles. You know that. I always ask questions that get me thinking and hopefully you as well. So I thought I'd explore for a second in my own mind. How might we explain what's actually happening? How does Jesus actually walk on water? Jesus is 100 percent human being. He has the same exact physical body that you and I possess today, though without sin. When you and I stand on water and sink into it, it's not because of the sin in us that makes us sink. It's simply a matter of physics. The material physical body is so dense that it breaks the surface tension of water. So we sink. And friends, we are not more dense than Jesus, at least not physically. So why did Jesus float on water and we can't? It's a fair question. Now, we know it's a miracle. That doesn't answer it, though, really. How does he do it? The assumption is that Jesus's body has changed in some way. But I think that's actually working the problem backwards. I don't think Jesus's body is any different. I think the water is different. I think the spirit is changing the water, at least in a sense, permitting it to support the weight of a man, at least at the places where he's putting his feet on the water. Now, before you say, well, now you're just making stuff up, Steve. My assumption actually finds some support in the fact that not only did Jesus walk on the water, but so did Peter, though that's not captured in John's gospel. It is captured in the other account, in Matthew's account. We know Peter's body wasn't any better than ours, and yet he found a way to walk on water. It was likely then the spirit working to support Jesus on the water as the way we see happening throughout the gospel account. Christ being all God in the form of man, his ability to perform the miracles that he performed was the work of God, but not of God Christ, but of God the spirit working in Christ. That's how we're told that the miracles were accomplished. And if therefore the spirit is the one at work within the Godhead producing this miracle, as I believe it is, then it returns us to yet another of John's recurring motifs, and that is of the creation account motif. Remember, we started in John chapter one. In the beginning was the word and we saw the word and light and all these other elements of the beginnings of creation reflected in that account. Well, in Genesis one, you're also told that in the beginning, the spirit was hovering over the surface of the waters in total darkness. And earlier in John's gospel, we're told Jesus is the one who did all of that creating in the beginning. So now you see both Jesus and the spirit once again demonstrating their authority over the surface 
of the waters. When you combine this scene with a knowledge of what has just transpired earlier in Bethesda, Julius, you find a clear story emerging over Jesus' identity. He's been working to paint a picture of himself, largely for his disciples, for they're the intended audience here, of who he is historically in his prior work in the Old Testament. If the disciples knew the Genesis account, for example, they could recognize Jesus as creator, for they see him with power over the elements. If they knew the Exodus account, they could understand Jesus is Lord of the Exodus, the one who leads his people to the mountain and feeds his people with bread, for they saw that play out. If they remembered Deuteronomy, they would have recognized Jesus as the prophet who comes in the manner of Moses to fulfill the promise of Moses, which is what the people of the mountain itself had said. And if they knew the Psalms, they would have seen Jesus as a shepherd who causes the sheep to lie down in green pastures, as the one who leads them by still waters. I mean, we've got four books of the Bible going already. We probably could do more if we sat here and talked about it long enough. Christ is the one of the old who has come now in fulfillment. In fact, in Mark's gospel, we read this concerning Jesus' intentions. Verse 48 of Mark 6. Seeing them straining at the oars, for the wind was against them, at about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the seas, and then listen to this, and he intended to pass by them. Notice Mark says it was Jesus' intention not to enter the boat, to walk by the boat. He was going to walk past them. Why would you want to walk past the boat? Well, the only answer I have is so that he could lead them to shore, so he could lead them to the still waters. Had they not expressed fear over seeing him, then they would have seen that picture play out as well, for the only reason he diverted to them is because of their fear over him. They might have rowed the boat, following Jesus on still waters to their destination, which, as we learned, was very close by already. Instead, they don't recognize him as the sheep should recognize their shepherd. In fact, in all three Gospels, it's clear that they respond in fear. Mark's account says they think they see a ghost. Matthew's account, John's account, most talks about them fearing as they see something approach them on water. Now, certainly, watching a guy walk on water is going to surprise you. There's no doubt about that. But there is clear emphasis in the gospel accounts that their fear was unreasonable. There's an implied commentary coming out of the way the gospels are written on this particular account that make clear that they weren't supposed to have this fear. It was not natural, it was not expected, or at least not reasonable. Listen to how Mark's account ends as he comments on this moment. Mark 6.51. Then Jesus got into the boat with them and the wind stopped and they were utterly astonished. And then he says this. For they had not gained any insight from the incident of the loaves, but their heart was hardened. Pretty strong statement against these men, isn't it? That given all they had witnessed to this point, they should have understood his identity. And therefore, they should have had the potential to recognize his power over the elements. Such that when they were surprised by what they saw, there'd been an explanation in their brains to compensate and explain to them what they were seeing fast enough that they wouldn't have fallen into fear. They would have been, yes, astonished, yes, surprised, and perhaps joyfully so, but they would have seen it for what it was. Christ as God doing what God can do. Now, when Jesus sees their concern, he calls out to the men not to fear what they see, and he explains why they shouldn't fear. He says, it is I. But literally in the Greek, what do you think that phrase actually is? I am. Once more, John gives us a clear connection back to the Exodus account. I am was the term that the Lord used to identify himself to Moses at the burning bush. Who should I say has sent me? I am, the Lord said. There can be no clearer way in the whole of the Bible to declare oneself to be God than to repeat that iconic phrase.
the disciples were commanded not to fear because the Lord was with them. More even to the point, because the Lord was the Lord. Truly, there can be no more convincing reason to set fear aside than the fact that the Lord is with you. As Paul says in Romans 8.31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? If the God and the creator of the universe has declared to us that he is for us, he's in our side, he's, he's our advocate, that he has determined to align himself with us, then on what basis should we fear? What is more powerful than God? That's Paul's point from chapter 8. What is it that you fear that's capable of challenging a God who said he's for you? Where would that fear lead you? Are the waves more powerful than God? Would a so-called ghost, I mean, Mark says they thought they saw a ghost. Okay, let's say it's a ghost. Is a ghost more powerful than God? Is death more powerful than God? No, over all of these things, the Lord has power according to Scripture. And if so, then they can only harm us to the extent that the Lord permits them to harm us. And if he permits them to have any degree of authority over us, even for a moment, then there must be some good reason why the God who is for us would allow something like that to happen to us. It just makes perfect sense. So then again, why would we fear? If he is truly for you and yet something that is not good has happened to you, to whom do you ascribe that power? There's no one left. As Mark points out, there was something missing in their understanding of Jesus. They had not learned the lesson from the loaves because their heart was hardened. Were they unbelieving? Is that what he's saying? They were unbelieving concerning who Jesus is? Well, I want you to consider how Matthew's gospel records the end of this scene. Matthew 14, 32 and 33, Matthew writes, When they got into the boat, Matthew's got Peter on the water also, remember? So it's plural. When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. Those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. Wow, it's like Matthew and Mark wrote about two different events, isn't it? But they're reconcilable easily enough. When Jesus entered the boat, we're told the wind stopped. And upon seeing the combination of his power to walk on the water and the fact that his entrance into the boat immediately stopped a wind, that you couldn't have explained it any other way except as a miracle, they recognize all of this is the power of God and they declare him to be God's son. Clearly, they are not unbelieving. They see him for who he is and they acknowledge it. And yet we have this statement from Mark. Mark says they hadn't learned the lesson due to the hard heart. We're seeing that even among those who understand Jesus to be Messiah, you can still remain in the dark about what a Messiah comes to do for you. You can still remain in the dark concerning the purposes of a Messiah's ministry. These men hadn't gained insight, Mark says. What he means is they had not gained the connection between Jesus and the Exodus, Jesus and Psalms, Jesus and creation. They had not understood that he was coming like a Moses to set them free from a slavery, only this time slavery to sin. They didn't realize, as Psalm 23, 4 says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me, which is exactly what was being fulfilled as he says, I am with you on the water. This episode on the water is a test for the disciples designed to reveal whether they are prepared to walk in the faith that is already budding in their hearts. And like the test at the mountain of Bethesda, they failed this one, I think. They succumb to fear because they don't know Jesus 
as God. Not in the full sense of that, not as we do now, not as they will eventually, but in some limited view. Twice now, they have failed to anticipate his ability to have command over the elements. They couldn't see how he could make food out of nothing, and they couldn't see how he could walk on water and still the wind. Friends, that's the difference between knowing Jesus as Lord and abiding in Jesus. This is the definitional difference. To know Jesus as Lord is to accept the gospel and to be saved. To abide in Jesus is to live according to the gospel. These men recognize Jesus as Messiah, but they aren't in a position to live in the light of that revelation. All Christians are learning how to make this same transition, and we're all at some point on that path. Some are farther along than others. Some are more mature than others. But this is the path. This is the walk of sanctification. You start the walk with faith. You move along the walk by learning how to abide in Christ. So as Jesus enters the boat, John says they are immediately at their destination. Some have argued this is yet another miracle within the string of miracles taking place here. I don't see it that way because the word in Greek for immediately can mean either instantly, which would imply a miracle, but it can also mean simply a very short time. It doesn't require miraculous movement. It just means it didn't take long. And more than likely, given that the fact they've already gone three plus miles, the way I like to imagine this scene is they were so close to the shore, they might have been able to swim there, but they had no idea because it was dark, it was stormy, and they're too busy rowing to ever consider where they were or how close they had made it. And John's description of the events leaves us with this really strong contrast between a group of men struggling on their own, in their own power, to try to make their way to shore on their own, versus a really quick, easy journey with Jesus. That's the flip side of the lesson of abiding in Christ. When a disciple of the Lord isn't abiding in him, that is, we're relying on our own power rather than his, we are, as it were, rowing against the wind. We're exerting a lot of energy, but we're getting nowhere fast. And all the while, we may actually be really close to some destination that that is appropriate, the one that the Lord actually wants us to get to. But because we're in the dark, we don't realize how close we are, whether we're striving to obtain a peaceful, loving family or to raise godly kids or to address some emotional trauma or an addiction or to accomplish some work of ministry. In each case, you can strive in your own power. Or you can abide in the Lord's power. Striving in your own power just leaves you standing still because you'll have problems unresolved, energy wasted. You you really don't even know where you are on some path to getting where you need to be. And you're so self-focused that you're not looking up and trying to understand what God is prepared to do. But if you abide in Christ, which means first a humbling of self, a yielding to the spirit and an understanding that in your own power you have no power. With that mindset, with that heart, with that recognition, then... Abiding means recognizing Christ has the power to do all those things on his own, even without us lifting a finger, so to speak, or at least without us having to engineer the solution. First thing that that mindset of abiding in Christ produces is no fear. You have no fear at that point. It doesn't rest on you. It doesn't depend on you. It's not coming from you. You're not the engineer. You're not the navigator. You're not the engine. No fear. Ultimately, it brings you to wherever the Lord has decided to lead you. Imagine had they not feared the Lord, he walks right by. Imagine what comes next. A calm sea is the presumption. That's what he did when he got in the boat. And what comes after a calm sea? Clear line of sight. Easy movement. A Lord who leads you. Clearly, we could talk at length about all the lessons you can find in this moment. John comes back to them plenty of times again, so we'll just wait for them as well. Meanwhile, we have unfinished business, at least for part of chapter 6 here, with the crowd that received that bread and that fish in Bethesda. We've seen what the disciples got out of the lesson, which is precious little. 
And just another opportunity to learn the lesson again. What happens to all those people who said Jesus was the prophet, who declared him to be the man that Moses spoke of and who followed him for so far? Now what? They saw the miracle. Did they understand it right? Perhaps they were just making the same kind of mistake these disciples were making. Maybe they understood Jesus to be Messiah, but they misunderstood what Messiah was coming for. So John explains what happens next. Verse 22 through 25. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there were no other small boat there except one. And that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone away alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? The way this plays out, according to John, is the next morning, the crowd in Bethesda awakens. They don't go away, as Jesus told them to do. They hung around. They wake up and they realize Jesus is not here. Okay, then they start to think, well, what happened to this man? He didn't leave with the disciples because we saw him send them away. He said, bon voyage. He shoved them off the shore. He went back up the mountain. So he didn't go with them. There's only been one other boat here and it's still here. So he couldn't have left in that boat. He didn't walk out of the camp because we were here with him. We would have seen that happen. We were watching out for him as it was. So they're mystified. Where did Jesus go? Then, as they're contemplating the absence of Christ, a bunch of other boats come up from a place called Tiberias. Tiberias is located on the far western shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's a good eight miles if you just did it as a crow flies across the water. Eight miles is a fair amount of rowing. And they're getting there early in the day, so they obviously are motivated to show up early. And the word apparently has been spreading around the Sea of Galilee like wildfire that Jesus has a fish and chips operation going up in Bethesda, and we need to get up there and get some of ours before it's all gone. And so they show up looking for presumably the food. It's about that time that the people who were already there have figured out that he's not just hiding. We didn't just misplace him. He's not here. And they assume that they just need to find him back in Capernaum. And that makes sense because that was his home base. That was his headquarters. He lived in Capernaum when he was working out of the Galilee. So they hitch rides on all of the boats that have conveniently shown up at right about this point. And they all head off together to where they assume Jesus to be in Capernaum. Once they get there, they find him. And then they ask the natural question, how'd you get here? Had Jesus decided to answer that question, honestly, it would have made for a very interesting story. And I would have been really fascinated to see what their response would have been if he had tried to explain it. But he doesn't do that. I want you to notice though they address him in a very interesting way here. They call him rabbi, which just means teacher. Now, that's the first hint for us that their perspective on Jesus ain't right. They address him in a respectful way, yes, but they don't address him as Messiah, much less as Lord, they talk to him in a human term, as a teacher. Just a night earlier, what were they calling him? The prophet. But now it appears that they've retreated from that opinion, probably because Jesus did not join in the rebellion with them. He rejected that call, so maybe that gave them cause to think, well, maybe he's not the guy we thought he was. Now he's just teacher. And as we've seen in past chapters of John, Jesus begins to engage with them now in this extended discussion. This is one of those hallmarks of John's gospel, these long narratives, monologues, you might call them, or dialogues in this case. Jesus begins this extended discussion with the crowd. And once again, like before, you're going to see this discussion proceeding like two ships passing in the night. It's another of these classic conversations in which Jesus is going to talk in spiritual terms while they talk in earthly terms. Verse 26, Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you. You seek me, not because you saw signs, 
but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Well, therefore, they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, Well, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. He calls them out for their false motives. He says, you know, you're seeking me, yes, but you're not seeking me, except that you want me to give you some more of the food that I made for you guys back on the other side of the, of the sea. The signs, he says, that Jesus performed, they were intended to reveal him as Messiah. I mean, you don't give somebody a sign just uh, for the fun of it. There's a message intended in that. The point is that you would communicate through a sign. What was the message he was trying to communicate? I am God. That was the sign. But for the crowd, they completely misunderstood its spiritual message. The meaning of Jesus' multiplying of bread and fish miraculously meant to them unlimited refills. That's what they were hearing. It was a message about the food. It was a sign of his ability to feed them. It was really at that simple level of the physical. That's all they understood in the sign. It was reinforced for them. This guy's our meal ticket. But it wasn't intended to teach that, right? What was the spiritual meaning of a sign when you see a man multiplying food? The point of it was to give them spiritual insight concerning his identity. The crowd was supposed to do this. They were supposed to see the miracle, recognize its meaning. This man is God in the flesh. And at that point, care nothing for the food. The food becomes completely irrelevant to the situation at that point. Now we're having a much bigger conversation. The prospect of that meal or any others pales in comparison to the prospect of, I have an audience with God himself. What now do I need to concern myself with? Well, how about things eternal? How about what will happen when I die? How about my soul? That would be the first thing on my mind if I'm in the audience of a man I believe to be God. They're supposed to be moved to consider the implications of what it means that a man stands before them performing works that only God can perform. It's supposed to lead them to seek him as God. Instead, they embark on a long journey back and forth across the Sea of Galilee to get bread and fish and to be healed. And Jesus says, you know, you guys are working for the wrong things. And this is work, right? They're working. They're expending effort. They've made it a priority in their life to go seeking after these earthly things. So in verse 27, Jesus says, you know, don't work for the things that perish. He's referring to the bread, of course, and the fish. But, but I think he means anything of this world. Anything. I mean, we have physical needs. God knows we have physical needs. The Bible says he's prepared to meet those needs. He's not oblivious to those needs. But we cannot make the obtaining of things of this life the focus of our life. Instead, we seek the food, Jesus says, that endures to eternal life. The Greek word for endure is meno, which is commonly translated abide. And that's one of John's favorite words in his gospel, to abide in Christ. In effect, what Jesus says is we have to abide in eternal bread, which is the eternal life that Messiah offers. The Messiah is the one on whom the Father has set his seal, that is the seal of his approval, and therefore he is the only one approved by the Father to grant eternal life. He is the only one with the Father's seal of approval. So if we're going to do something, if we're going to work for something, if we're going to make something our focus, our effort in life, and you only have so much time and energy and opportunity, what are you going to focus on? Jesus says you should work to abide in Christ, but look at what their own words say about them. They ask Jesus, what works do we need to do to please God? They want to work the works of God. Now, the sense of their question is, what can I do to earn eternal life? You tell us we ought to be focused on that, we hear you. Tell us what we've got to do to earn it. 
Jesus confronted another man you may know in, in Matthew's Gospel. It's recorded in a couple of the Gospels. Matthew 19, in which a man, a ruler, comes up to him and asks him, how can I obtain eternal life? And Jesus essentially answered the question by telling him, you had to be sinless, do all the commandments. To which this man surprisingly replies, well, I've kept them all. Since my youth, as far as back as I can possibly remember, I've done them all. That's the attitude of this crowd. Just tell us what we have to do. If you just explain what these works are that we have to do in order to qualify for eternal life, I'm happy to go accomplish those things. Just lay them out for me and I'll get started. Meanwhile, do you have any food? When you say something like that, when the ruler said this in Matthew 19, and when these guys say what they do here, it reflects no understanding of sin or of the judgment that sin requires. It takes no time to consider where you really stand before God. No one prior to receiving God's grace can understand that they are incapable of entering heaven, in my opinion. Sometimes you'll find these guys and gals who are so intent on being crass and cynical that you'll say to them, you know, without Jesus, you're going to go to hell or something to that effect. And they'll say, well, you know what? I don't care. I don't mind going to hell. That's where all the good people are anyway. You know, the uh, boring people are in heaven. I don't believe they mean that. I don't think at the deepest level of their psyche, they really even believe what they're saying or care what they're saying. It's not even said with think with any conviction. It's flippant. No one understands the jeopardy of sinful life till they've been saved from it. Now, they understand conviction. They may understand the pain and, and suffering that sin presents in the life of an unbeliever. They may understand all that it comes with, but they don't necessarily understand the jeopardy of it. I think, in fact, to understand the jeopardy of sin is the prerequisite moment to coming into faith itself. That's the repentant moment. And until you're in that moment, well, you have nothing to repent of, nothing to be saved from. All men believe themselves at some level to be good enough to qualify for heaven on their own. Everyone has a sense that there's at least someone worse than me and God must judge me better than the average or at least well enough. As Jesus explained to that same man in Matthew 19 who addressed him as good teacher, he says, there is no one good except God alone. That was Jesus' statement. The word good in the biblical sense is not a spectrum but a point. In our sinful mindset, we tend to take goodness and we say, well, you got a lot of good, a little good, some good, not so much good, terrible, really bad at the far end, and then Hitler is somewhere right of all of that. Because that's our mindset. But the Bible says good is not a spectrum. It's a point. You are either good or you are not. And only one is good, God alone. So how does anyone go to heaven? Only if you are given God's goodness do you qualify. Because you can never earn enough on your own to come close to the glory of God. So Jesus answers their question in verse 29, saying that the only work that they can do, and I put the word work here in quotations. He simply reuses their word. The only, quote, work that you can do to obtain eternal life is to believe in the one the Father has sent, which, of course, is Christ. Of course, friends, we know that's no work at all, not in the sense of the meaning of the word. It's a matter of faith. Faith is a confidence that a promise of God is true. That's how Hebrews 11 defines it. Faith is confidence that something God promised is going to happen. The promise of Christ is that he is the son of God and that his death in our place satisfied the wrath of God for our sin. And therefore, when you put your trust in that provision, then you are ensuring that what happened to him will happen to you. That his death leading to resurrection will become your future as well. Your physical death will lead you into a resurrected body, one that then takes you into glory. That's the so-called work that brings you eternal life, putting your faith in Christ. As Jesus spoke those words to the crowd, he was describing himself as, you notice, the son of man and calling on the crowd to see him that way and then calling God the father, his father. 
He is affirming his identity to them. He's claiming to have been sent by the Father, and he's reminding them through his miracles and those proofs of his claims that he is also God. I want you to imagine the power of this. You have the Lord himself standing there presenting the gospel of himself through his own lips to these people standing there staring at the Lord. Can you imagine any earthly evangelism that could be any more powerful? Any earthly evangelist with more capability, more potential to convert than this man doing what he does in this moment in front of them, having given them all of those signs. Is there a more powerful, convincing evangelistic moment? So I I say to you, if someone of lesser power with lesser authority can present a lesser form of the gospel, so to speak, and have it result in salvation for someone who hears, then should we not assume that the Lord would be more effective than that? If ordinary people can bring others to faith by the presentation of the gospel, shouldn't the Lord himself always be successful in that endeavor? Is he successful in this endeavor? What do you suppose they did with this call, with this compelling call from the lips of the Lord himself? Verse 30, so they said to him, what do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. You see what they're doing? The people answer asking Jesus, you know, that sounds good. Okay, we hear you, son of man and all that. Give us a sign. Give us something to put us over the hump. We just want to believe, but we just need a little more, a little more from you now, Jesus. What is it going to be? How about a sign? Can you do something for us? In fact, just to be sure Jesus gets the hint, they offer a suggestion of the kind of sign that he should do for them right about now. Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness because Moses provided it. They remind him, you know, Moses, when he was with the Israelites, uh, you may have heard this, Jesus, when they were wandering, he gave them bread. (laughs) Remember, they had declared the day before that Jesus was the prophet that Moses said he would be. And so they're playing on that and they're now telling Jesus, we'll consider the possibility that you are who you claim to be, uh, but you need to do a little more of that Moses stuff. In particular, we really want daily bread. Now catch that. That's the important word in this in this request. They don't just want him to perform a sign. They said, you know, every single day there was bread there. That was true, right? The daily bread of manna came down from heaven every day dependably. You know, you don't have to be a genius to see through their little scheme here. They're misusing scripture and don't miss that. They've actually misquoted scripture here. And Jesus deals with it here in a minute. But they misuse scripture in an attempt to bait Christ into providing them not just one more free meal here. They want an endless gravy train. They want a meal that just goes on forever here. And their argument is, if that was a good enough sign for Moses, it should be a good enough sign for you now, since you're the prophet that Moses said was coming. And then we'll believe if a miracle, friends, of that type was all that was required so that they would know him a Messiah, then the previous feeding in Bethesda would have accomplished that very same outcome. And even if Jesus had done what they would request, it would have convinced them. All they wanted was the food. And so while they remain focused on earthly things and trying to manipulate and play this game and get what they want. Jesus sticks to the spiritual discussion. Look at verses 32 through 34. Jesus then said to them, truly. Truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. They are on a one track mind, are they not? First, and I want to point this out just so that we keep scripture straight. In verse 32, Jesus corrects their interpretation. What they had done was they had 
twisted. By the context, it's clear that when they said in verse 31 that he gave them bread out of heaven, it's intended to emphasize Moses giving them bread. But when you go back and look at that quote out of Exodus 16, it's actually not quoted exactly that way. In Exodus, it's clear that it's the father giving them bread. They've twisted that. And I don't think they've just done it here in this moment for manipulative purposes. I mean, I think this is how they remember it. I think this is what they think happened. This is their version of the history. Their memory is it was Moses who gave us bread. Because they have no heart to believe and they don't see God truly. They're earthly in their mindset. But Moses didn't perform the miracle of providing bread. It was the Father in heaven who supplied the manna. Moses couldn't have brought bread down from heaven any more than he could have done any of the other miracles, right? Notice, though, Jesus says some things very specifically. He says, my Father in heaven. He uses the the article my. His point is twofold. God provides the bread and I am God. Secondly, Jesus distinguishes between the two breads here, the one of earth and the one of heaven. He calls the bread of heaven true bread. This is the bread that descends from heaven to give man life. That is eternal life. Now, very easily, you should be able to see that the manna that descended for the Israelites back in the story of Exodus must have been designed by God, even from the beginning when it was provided, even in the time when it was put together and given to the Israelites, that it was designed by God to create a picture of Jesus. That he knew that there would be a day in the future when this moment would happen, when Jesus would be standing on the shores of Capernaum talking to these people about bread. And he wanted to make sure that when this conversation happened, or for that matter, when we read about it now, there would be this touch point back in history for us to get this connection from. So that's why he made such a miraculous provision to the Israelites in Exodus. He could have had them fed a thousand ways. He could have had Midianites with camels and trailers drive through the camp every day on cue and brought them food. But rather, he, he created this miraculous, weird provision of a special bread that literally descended from heaven every morning and was found on the ground. He did that so that we could then see a connection between that physical bread and Christ, who calls himself the bread of life. First, think about it. The bread was a provision from the Father for Israel. Secondly, That bread came from nothing. It literally descended out of nowhere, out of heaven. Thirdly, the bread was a source of life for them. You hadn't given them that manna, they would have died of starvation in the desert. Now, in each of those details, the manna of the desert is a picture of Christ in a lesser to greater relationship. Think of it. Jesus, like that bread, was a provision of the Father for Israel. Not for physical life, but for eternal life. Jesus, like the bread, came down out of heaven, out of nothing, literally, so to speak. He was born from a virgin. And then lastly, Jesus is the source of eternal life for those who take him in, who receive him. That's what keeps us alive spiritually. And it's that last point that Jesus is trying to make to the crowd. Just as he said in John 4, I am the living water. Now here in John 6, he's saying, I'm the bread of life. Both of those are connected to the Exodus motif once more. They follow Jesus as if he's a successor to Moses, and yet they follow him in very much the same way that Israel followed Moses in the desert. Remember, how did that generation follow Moses? The writer of Hebrews says they had no faith in their heart. They followed him only in the way of an earthly understanding. Jesus' disciples, you might ask, are they the same as this group? Are they different? What's the distinction between how the disciples respond and how this group responds? Well, to put it simply, the disciples understood Jesus as Messiah, but they're lacking in appreciation for what that means. This crowd is still on the outside looking in. They don't understand Jesus at all. Notice their reaction. They say, Lord, always give us this bread. They call him Lord, but not in the messianic sense, only as a a sign of respect, like you and I might say, sir, to someone. They're flattering him. 
They're hoping that he will agree to their appeals for bread. Notice they say, always give us this bread. They want that man a gravy train that their ancestors got in the desert. What a stunning display of the blindness of unbelief. For this crowd, there is simply no other consideration possible other than the physical and the earthly. They can't imagine a better blessing from God than to have their physical needs met. It's not as though they're just obstinate here. They can't tune into the wavelength of what Jesus is saying. It's totally going over their heads. The only thing that is in their mind is, I got a physical body that's hungry. You seem to have the ability to feed it. That's really the main thing for me right now. It's Maslow's hierarchy. I need food so that I can then get to the next level, which is an entirely an earthly focus, a physical focus. And what Jesus keeps saying to them is, I'm not going to satisfy that. Could he have made bread? Oh, easily. All day long. Every day he did for the Israelites. He could do it again for them now. Why doesn't he just do it? Because if Jesus had agreed to their request, had he fed their physical bodies again, then their bodies, though being fed, would still have died and their souls would have still entered into hell for eternity. But what good has been accomplished in that in that work? As Jesus says in Mark, Mark 8, 35, Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's sake will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Now, to conclude his point, in the last verse for the night, John 6:35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger and he who believes in me will not thirst. Just pressing the metaphor a little further, he declares plainly, he is the bread that comes down to give eternal life. And to those who receive him, they will stop hungering for a solution to their sin, that is. Once you find the bread of life, you have no need for any other. I tell people all the time that that endless search for satisfaction or absolution or whatever it is we need in life can only be found in the person of Christ. Once you find him, you don't ever feel like you need more than that. And tying together the Exodus theme from John 4, Jesus says, and no one will ever thirst either. Simply put, seek for a solution to your spiritual needs rather than to your physical needs. We all have physical needs. We all will always have them this side of glory. And by the way, if you haven't already figured it out, they get worse. They get more numerous. You will need more things tomorrow than you do today. You will hurt more. You'll be weaker. I mean, I'm afraid to tell you, I hope it's not ruining the end of your story, but this is how it's going to go. Until the day our body is replaced. That is the curse that God has placed on the earth for now. It's inevitable. Therefore, why waste time trying to resolve it? The resolution of it is to escape it. And the escape comes by an eternal life and a new body that we all inherit at some point in the future. Those who have ears to hear will hear this call and believe it and seek for Christ so that they find him. And having found them, they will rejoice for what they gain eternally and they will care little for what they lack physically. For whatever they lack, or even for that matter, whatever you gain in this life is temporary. But what you gain eternally can never be taken away. Now, if Jesus can make the gospel pitch better than any of us with more power and signs to back it up and still find an audience that won't accept it, that starts to beg a question, doesn't it? What leads someone to believe in the gospel? Who's more powerful than God? Romans 8 says no one. So when God stares you in the face and says, believe in me, who has the power to resist that? Well, it would seem to me that the only way that that can be true is if God himself, if the power of God himself is somehow standing in the way of that faith. 
For if God himself makes the pitch, but a man doesn't accept it, there's no other explanation for why the power to receive it hasn't been found. We'll get back to that. That's where John goes in the second part of this or the last part of this chapter. The third part of this chapter is to resolve the fundamental problem of how this could not have been convincing. But I want to resolve or wrap up one last detail. I promised you I would from last week. Remember in the beginning of chapter one, I said there was a good reason why the miracle of the loaves began with bread already on earth in contrast to the way the miracle was done in Exodus with manna that came down from heaven. You remember that? I said I may have left some of you frustrated. I promised I'd explain it later. Well, actually, I don't have to. Jesus just explained it. In the time of the Exodus, remember, the manna was a representation of Christ to come. We just said that. Jesus just said that. But at that time, back in Exodus, he hadn't descended yet from heaven, had he? He was still up in the heavens. So the symbol that the Lord provided to the people on earth of Jesus through bread was of a material, something materializing out of nothing from heaven every morning. That's a perfect picture of the Jesus who is yet to come. Still in heaven, waiting to descend. Look up, he's coming. But then in the miracle of the loaves, well, the Lord was already resident on the earth. He was already down here. He had already descended. And more than that, he had already come in a very meager form. One that hardly appeared sufficient to meet the qualifications he claimed. So... The nature of the miracle changed slightly so that the bread itself still matched perfectly in picturing the Christ who was making it. In this case, the bread of life came from bread already on earth rather than something new coming from heaven. And it was a very meager portion, something no one could have imagined had the power and capacity to take care of the problem. It was barely noticeable, and yet it was multiplied to meet the needs of everyone abundantly. That's another perfect picture of the Christ we now have Having descended, that is the gospel itself, and so it is with Christ. He causes us never to hunger again, spiritually speaking. But as I said, this conversation is not over yet. We have to consider how a group like this could get so close and yet be so far from understanding the Lord. And it offers John a chance to explore another facet of salvation next week. So next week we're going to do the rest of this chapter. The focus changes almost entirely to a salvitic conversation, the nature of salvation, and specifically the source of saving faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, for the bread of life. For Christ descended, Christ dying and resurrected. Thank you, Father, for the work of that miracle. I don't even know if thanks can capture it, Father. It seems like an empty response to such a miraculous provision of grace. And yet, Father, it's the basis for everything. So not only do we remember it and thank you for it, Father, but we repeat it on every hill, to every person we meet as you give us opportunity. And yet we do it, Father, understanding that it can't be done in our own power, for if the Lord himself may speak these words and people reject it, then who are we, Father? And yet by that same token, so many have repeated it and have seen the result we desire to see. So, Father, we are encouraged to know that it does not depend on us. It does not even depend on the hearer. It depends on you alone. And so we pray, Father, that you would be the author and perfecter of faith in hearts around us as we seek to present the gospel so that we may be overjoyed to see that work done around us and through us. Give us that blessing from time to time. Father, encourage us so that we may truly understand what it means to see new life birthed through the giving of the Spirit. Father, we pray for that opportunity. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us here tonight. Send us home safely, and if it be your will, Father, return us, and perhaps with a few others, so that we may share the gospel with them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.